Michelle Young. And I'm Sam Tracy. And you're listening to This Week in Drugs, the leading podcast on all things drugs and drug policy, including news, science, health, and history. This show is an all-volunteer project by students and alumni of Students for Sensible Drug Policy, an awesome organization working to end the war on drugs. Every week on This Week in Drugs, we hope to educate the public and decision makers about drugs in order to eliminate harmful misconceptions and improve public policy. And hopefully have some fun while we're at it. We neither condemn nor condone drug use. Rather, we envision a world in which our attitudes and laws surrounding drugs are grounded in science, compassion, health, and human rights. As always, we'll start things off with a discussion of the biggest drug news from the last week, a couple of quick hit headlines, and a forecast of upcoming events in the weeks ahead. Then, it's time for the third installment of September's Drug of the Month, where we'll go over the history behind Ritalin. Finally, we'll be having our roundtable discussion about Drug Story, a new interactive drug use database and web application, with its creator and executive director, Michaela Helwick. As a full disclosure, Sam and Rochelle are on the board of directors for Drug Story. Of course, we'll wrap things up with our call to action, because while educating ourselves about drugs is important, it's not as important as using that knowledge to improve our communities and make the world a better place. So thanks for joining us for episode 62 of This Week in Drugs. Now it's time for the weekly news and forecast, where we're going to talk about some of the biggest drug news stories from the last week and about a couple of cool events that are coming up. So, Rochelle, do you want to start things off with the first story? Yeah, Sam. So our first story this week is about Thailand, which in the early 2000s launched a violent war on drugs that led to nearly 3,000 extrajudicial killings, similar to what we're seeing in the Philippines now, and is still better known within international drug policy communities for its routine execution of drug traffickers. Yet, in shocking news this week, its top law enforcement official, Justice Minister Paibun Kumchaya, a straight-laced army general who came to power in a military coup, said they would consider decriminalizing meth. So, according to Kumchaya, quote, the world has lost the war on drugs, not just Thailand, end quote. Um, and we honestly could not agree more. According to Pascal Tangay, a Bangkok-based associate with the International Drug Policy Consortium, Thai leaders have been discussing everything from non-enforcement of meth laws to full-fledged legalization of the drug. Um, in Thailand and many other Southeast Asian countries, meth is actually far more popular than marijuana as a cheap and potent energy boost. Um, so a lot of the driving force behind this shift in attitudes is that the popular perception of the meth user in Thailand has shifted in recent years from that of an evil drug crazed junkie to more like students, truck drivers and other agricultural laborers using meth just to stay awake and work longer hours. Interesting. So, I mean, it sounds like they're in kind of a similar place as the U.S. is now with opiates and that. For the longest time when it was used more by or at least perceived to be used more by uh, kind of the fringes of society or marginalized groups, then it was this terrible thing. And then once, to put it bluntly, white people started using it a lot more dying from it then they started actually right, treating more it as main- public health. 
Yeah, and like now that the less marginalized sectors of their society have been using it re- regularly, and I mean, it's not, it's also not dissimilar from the abuse of study drugs that we've been talking about on our drug of the month, right? I mean, chemically, they're very similar and they're being used in same in the same ways. Um, the other, I mean, in addition to the public perception being a major factor here in the United States, for example, um, to use your opiate analogy, um, you know, the outrageous number of deaths that have been occurring um, as part of that epidemic was a uh, like a, a motivational factor to shift the policy in Thailand, it's definitely been the overcrowding of prisons, um, which has been in the news a little bit. Also, of course, um, Thailand still has a much lower per capita rate of imprisoned people than the United States, but their um, prison conditions are just beyond even what we're seeing here in the mm-hmm. U.S. And that, and it is really interesting too. I, I really like what they said of, of the world has lost the war on drugs, not just Thailand, because I mean it's so interesting too. I mean, international politics isn't my favorite part of politics, but it is pretty interesting. And just this whole idea of a, a lot of countries, you know, kind of doubling down because thinking of like, oh, we just didn't try hard enough or something. And the 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 Thai government is basically saying of like, oh no, this this isn't our fault. This is just a terrible policy that doesn't work for anybody. Um, and so like realizing that, especially since they kind of got forced into this uh, in many ways, pressured by the United States and other uh, larger powers into having these sorts of policies, it's nice that they're not like internalizing it and just being, hey, maybe this was just a bad idea to try. I mean, the timing of this is kind of unfortunate because um, Ungas happened just a couple months ago, and Thailand was actually one of the countries that were pushing for more um, severe and prohibitionist-style policies during that meeting. But maybe they had a coming, you know, not a coming to God, since we don't believe in God, <laughs> but like like uh, a, a change in uh, perspective following Ungas that is now making them realize that maybe doubling down isn't the way to go. Yeah, maybe seeing that um, whole debate sh- helped show them the light of drug policy reform <laughs> to sure. use some sort of vaguely secular sort of uh, symbolism. <laughs> yeah. But staying on the uh, the international front for our second story, um, this one is about Canada, our friends up north. And uh, so a spokesman for hello. the <laughs> hello. Um, a spokesman for the Canadian government has said that the country plans to press the United States on updating its border policy on marijuana, given recent and pending legal reforms in both the U.S. and Canada. So as it stands, the current policy is that American border officials can refuse to allow entry to anyone who admits to having consumed any illegal drug, which, of course, still includes marijuana at any point in their lives. And so while this is rare, it does actually happen. Uh, This discussion uh, in this article, which we'll, of course, post to our website, uh, was in response to one such case of a resident of British Columbia named Matthew Harvey, who was denied entry to the U.S. in 2014. Uh, And while this case is already ridiculous, what makes it even crazier is that he was trying to enter Washington State, uh, where anyone over 21 can purchase marijuana in a store. Uh, But they still turned him away for having tried marijuana at some point in his life. Uh, So obviously, as our as our resident Canadian analyst, Rochelle, what are are your thoughts on this? 
So I don't know anyone personally to whom this has happened. And as someone who frequently crosses the border between Canada and the United States, Mm -hmm. um, that's not a question that ever comes up during my border crossing. Like they ask you Mm -hmm. all. No, I'm not sure what um, this Matthew Harvey person was doing or discussing Mm -hmm. that prompted them um, to ask that question. Um, I do know that I've seen stories like this since since like years ago. And when I first started working at the Marijuana Policy Project, for example, my boss actually sent me um, a similar article that was like, hey, you shouldn't discuss any personal use just in case, Um, you know, because we don't want you to get stuck in Canada and not be able to work for MPP (laughs) anymore. Um, And I had like a mini freak out the first time I like crossed the border back Mm -hmm. um, into the United States from Canada after um, becoming uh, employed by MPP when they asked me uh, what my business was or what I was mm-hmm. if if I was working in the U.S. I was like, nope, I'm unemployed. <laughs> I was like, I don't want to go down that rabbit mm-hmm. hole. Um, and yeah, that is so interesting too. Of that, this story didn't say exactly as you said what this guy was doing or what kind of maybe he was wearing a shirt that had a mention of marijuana on it. Maybe the border guard was having a bad day or was some kind of anti drug zealot and is one of the few that asks this. Um, but it is definitely rare. Um, but of course, it, that doesn't mean that it's good to keep on the books. And that uh, actually like allows it to be used a lot more politically. Um, I think there was one mention in the article that there was a, a people attempted to try to block John Lennon from coming into the U.S. in 1973 <laughs> because he admitted to previous drug use. I mean, the same thing could basically be said of like, I remember there was the like deport Justin Bieber petition or whatever on the nice. White House website that... <laughs> They theoretically could have had the power to do so because, you know, he makes like drug references or something or like they could have stopped him from coming right. back I'm in if they sure wanted been, to. There have been like photos of him, mm-hmm. you know, passing joints around. and whatever. Yeah, but it just seems so crazy, of course, because our president has admitted to using both marijuana and cocaine. Of course, being a U.S. citizen, he won't be barred, but it seems crazy to be preventing other people from just entering the country for something that the president has admitted to doing. Yeah, I mean, again, from just based on personal experience, um, even though I am a person of tremendous privilege as far as um, like my wealth background and education, Mm -hmm. this is one area where I can definitely feel like where I definitely feel like I'm not uh, like I've been a green card holder Mm -hmm. for years um, and I'm a legal resident of the United States, but I don't feel like I have the full um, gamut of rights mm-hmm. that American citizens do. Um, for one, like when I was living in the District of Columbia, I certainly could have qualified as a medical marijuana patient mm-hmm. um, under DC's laws, but that's something I I never had the courage to do because I was worried, mm-hmm. you know, if they if I ever have my medical marijuana card in my wallet by accident and it like falls yeah, out <laughs> while I'm mm-hmm. at the border, um, then that's. I mean, that's admitting to being a medical, mar- uh, like a marijuana mm-hmm. user, even if it's legal where I'm doing yeah. it. Um, and, and it is really scary, too, of just, uh, I mean, we're a little over time, but just want to talk about this one other really important um, other article. This was in Westward. Um, there was a, a woman who was trying to visit the U.S. Uh, she lived in Chile. Um, she was not a U.S. citizen. Uh, she had been here many times before. I think she even had like a longtime partner that she was um ha- ha- doing a, a kind of long time visit for um but she admitted to, when she was trying to get into the country um she admitted to having tried marijuana on a previous visit in the united states while she was visiting colorado 
and they refuse to let her in. <laughs> no. And so they're like, "You did this illegal thing that we let you yeah, do." Yeah. Like, oh, now our government licensed a bunch of businesses to sell you marijuana that you don't have in your own country, but you can't come back and do it. Um, right. And, and it's also important that. As far as deportation goes, so not just turning people away, but like kicking out people from the country um, who are already here, that any offense involving the sale of marijuana, which is even, you know, just like $5 worth, there's no uh, floor for how expensive it has to be. It's considered an aggravated felony that triggers mandatory deportation. Um, and so somebody who wow. is not a citizen can get deported. Uh, for, say, selling a, a friend $5 worth of marijuana or just accepting payment um, for sharing a joint or something. So there's obviously a lot of Whoa. serious problems with our immigration policy, and this is why federal uh, legalization is so important. Uh, if I ever get deported, I expect you and all of our listeners to start a GoFundMe to yes, bring me back. Yes, we'll start a petition and all sorts of things. <laughs> <laughs> Um, moving on to our next story, which is also Canada-oriented. Mm. The Canadian government this last week quietly approved new drug regulations that will allow doctors to prescribe pharmaceutical-grade heroin to treat patients struggling with severe addiction who have not responded to more conventional approaches. So Crosstown, which is a government-funded clinic in downtown Vancouver, currently administers a heroin maintenance program to 52 patients under a court order exemption but expects that that number will double under the new regulations. So right now, Crosstown is the only clinic that has this heroin maintenance program, and it's only for a very limited scope of patients, but the new regulations would expand what they're able to do with that program. Um, in 2005, Crosstown actually opened, uh, opened up its doors to, condu to conduct just a clinical trial of prescription heroin, but has been operating ever since. The program is the only one of its kind in Canada and the United States, but it's similar to the approach taken in about eight other European countries. And this is so interesting, too, just because, I mean, we've talked about before um, how in the United States... Um, we, we tend to use other opiates than heroin in a medical setting, but it is important to remember, too, that pharmaceutical grade heroin is actually used in many other countries for uh, for pain management. And so this sounds crazy to an American in terms of like, oh, they're creating heroin for just like to actually give to people in a controlled setting. And it sounds like this is completely out of the realm of possibility, but in other countries it is kind of similar to giving, say, Vicodin or Hydrocodone um, just under this sort of maintenance uh, therapy. But this is fantastic news just because I know that this has been used in many other countries, particularly Switzerland, of actually allowing people to uh, essentially help them wean off of these drugs or just give them basically a safe injection place where they're also providing it to them. Um, because even one of the shortcomings, I mean, of a safe injection facility is that people are still bringing their own drugs. And so if you're having that, it is a lot better than doing it yourself in the street. Um, but it's untested. You don't know the potency. It could have fentanyl in it. Um, and so that's a lot more dangerous than actually just providing it. Yeah. And um, there... There, there are studies that have shown that heroin maintenance, like actually providing pharmaceutical-grade heroin to people struggling with addiction, is far more effective than other types of maintenance therapy like methadone. Um, so this is the fastest way to help people um, struggling with addiction um, who are trying to maintain their habit, but also, or who are, you know, in the process of maintaining their habit, but also want to be productive members of society. Like you said, this also reduces their interactions with the uh 
criminal facets of society um, where they would normally be obtaining their drugs. So it reduces the likelihood of them being caught up in the criminal justice system or being involved in other crimes. Um, and it also gives them more time to be productive members of society if they're not like hanging out on street corners trying to obtain their next fix as their primary um, objective of the right, day. since the, those are many, uh, of course, there are many negative parts of, of uh, having a heroin addiction, but part of it is just that it ends up consuming so much of your life in terms of both physically locating it, finding the money in order to pay for it. So another thing is that property crime is so closely tied to people having to feed at a very expensive drug addiction. And so in this case, if you're actually receiving it from uh, from medical professionals, then I don't know if this is covered under insurance or being in Canada, I suppose that it being a government thing is just kind of the same as having insurance uh, with uh, socialized medicine and everything. So it actually uh, fixes a lot of the, the biggest problems with, uh, with drug addiction. And so for our final story this week is one, uh, our only United States story. Um, and this one is that a study out of Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health has found that after states legalize medical marijuana, people in car crashes in those states are less likely to test positive for opiates. So the researchers looked at federal crash data in 18 states uh, from 1999 to 2013, and among those states, the ones that legalized medical marijuana during that period saw a reduction in opioid involvement in fatal car accidents com in comparison to those states that did not legalize it. So what's even more interesting is that the reduction was greatest among drivers aged 21 to 40, who are more likely than other age groups to be willing to try marijuana in medical settings. Although, as we've reported before, that age gap is starting to close. Um, but since this is uh, 2013 and earlier, there still was more prevalent of a gap there. Um, so basically, this is uh, pretty simple. Uh, the authors actually just directly said in states with medical marijuana laws, fewer individuals are using opioids. Um, that's pretty much their conclusion. Um, there are a couple other things to talk about, but uh, of kind of qualifying factors here. But this is interesting to just have one more really good data point to back up previous studies like that one that saw a drop in Medicaid spending on opiates after medical marijuana passed. So this is basically saying substitution happens and it seems to be working. Yeah, it definitely bolsters that other study, too, that shows a 25 percent reduction in opiate-related overdoses in medical marijuana states, which I think is huge. Um, just from a prohibitionist perspective, I wonder if the argument or the counter-argument is that they didn't look at the number of car crashes involving marijuana that increased in contrast. I, I assume that would be the obvious you know, counter-argument to like, oh, even if it's a substitution therapy, maybe it's not reducing the number of crashes overall caused by some sort of substance use. Um, and yeah, that is a good but, point because, I mean, we, we've talked about on uh, these other studies, there was that AAA study a, a, a couple of months ago that found that there were more people testing, more people involved in crashes testing positive for marijuana in Washington state. Um, and so I do, you know, want to be consistent here and, and point out that, I mean, when that study came out, we were quick to point out that that doesn't mean that there were more crashes due to marijuana, just that more people were using marijuana because it stays in your system for so long. Um, and, and this is kind of the same way in that fewer people in car crashes had opiates in their system doesn't necessarily mean that there are fewer opiate actually 
you know, opiate caused car crashes in terms of people, say, you know, falling asleep at the wheel or, or having other impairment because of it. Um, but it is still a good study to just say, hey, more people are or fewer people are using opiates in the same way that that AAA study was basically just saying, yeah, more people are using marijuana. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying that data, too, because sometimes it's like really confusing to see what the data actually shows mm-hmm. versus how we interpret it or interpret, you know, mm-hmm. causation that may not be there. Yeah, definitely. Um, but it is I mean, I think it is overall um, a good sign that they're looking at opiate use in and how it's related to um, car crash fatalities mm-hmm. and not just like illicit drugs, yeah. because that's another hypocrisy that we've pointed out in the past mm-hmm. that, you know, people can use pharmaceuticals all the time and they're never pulled over for impaired or intoxicated yeah. driving. Yeah, I, I think it is st- still probably too early for it, but I, w- I can't wait until we actually see some really good studies on, say, the number of drunk driving fatalities or drunk or alcohol uh, related crashes that happen in states after they legalize recreational marijuana, because my gut is that there's a lot of substitution happening there uh just kind of anecdotally but i would love to see some actual data once we have a few years more on that side all right so moving on now to our quick hit headlines so a hospital in marin county california which is in the uh san francisco bay area could be the first in the country to allow patients to openly consume but not smoke medical marijuana in the hospital facility. A resolution to examine the legal and clinical implications was introduced this past week at a board meeting of the Marin Healthcare District by board member and longtime medical marijuana advocate, Dr. Larry Bedard. So that resolution is still being considered by the board, but um, if it passes, we may see a hospital that actually allows clinical medical marijuana use. Awesome. And in unfortunate news, the Arizona Supreme Court has rejected a petition to change the rules about lawyers' dealings with the state legal marijuana industry, which currently prohibit lawyers from helping clients sell marijuana because it remains federally illegal. The Heroin and Prescription Opiate Addiction Task Force in King County, a high-profile task force charged with addressing the heroin crisis in the Seattle area, has formally recommended the opening of supervised safe injection facilities where heroin users can consume safely. While several states and cities throughout the country have considered these facilities, there are no legal sites yet operating in the United States. And finally, the latest polling from the Los Angeles Times shows Proposition 64 doing very well. 58% of California voters say they plan to vote for the initiative, which would legalize marijuana for adults over 21, compared to only 34% saying they'll vote against it. So a massive 24-point lead with only 8% of voters undecided. Wow, that's huge. And so for my forecast this week, um, my forecast is to recommend everyone go watch a four-minute video if you haven't seen it already. Um, So this past week, the Drug Policy Alliance teamed up with Jay-Z of Beyonce fame to produce a short animated film depicting the racism behind the war on drugs and attempting to answer the question, why are white men poised to get rich doing the very same thing that African-American boys and men have long been going to prison for? So if you haven't read Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, this is like a super mini version of that uh, of that book. And it's also a great introduction um, if you have any families or, fr- or friends who may not be familiar with the history behind the war on drugs. Yeah, I actually just watched that this morning. It was fantastic. So any SSTP chapter leaders listening, that'll be a great way to start off your next meeting, perhaps. 
And uh, for my forecast this week is that today, uh, Sunday, marks the beginning of National Heroin and Opioid Awareness Week, which is a new effort by the U.S. Department of Justice. According to the Obama administration, the aim is to raise awareness about the rising public health crisis caused by drug overdoses, and the week will include multiple events by high-ranking DOJ officials centering on our response to the opioid overdose crisis. The main event is on Tuesday, when Attorney General Loretta Lynch will travel to Lexington, Kentucky to meet with the families and make a policy speech. And you can see the link on our website for the full schedule of events. And that's all for this week's weekly news and forecast. As always, we have our eye on the biggest news and headlines on drugs and drug policy from around the world, but there's always so much going on that we might not catch it all. So if there's anything that you see or read or hear about that you want us to report on uh, next episode, please send us an email at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com or hit us up on social media. We're on Twitter and Facebook. And now it's time for the drug of the month, where we take a closer look at our different drug each month. For September, we've been learning more about methylphenidate, better known by its brand name Ritalin. And last week, Sam talked about the science behind Ritalin and how it interacts with the human body. On today's episode, I'll be discussing the history of Ritalin, the origins of its use, and evolving societal attitudes towards Ritalin users. So methylphenidate was first synthesized in 1944, and was identified as a stimulant in 1954. As I mentioned in this month's intro episode, the original patent for Ritalin was first owned by SIBA, now Novartis Corporation, and was first licensed by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration in 1955 for treating what was then known as hyperactivity. Methylphenidate was synthesized by SIBA chemist Leandro Penazon. His wife, Marguerite, had low blood pressure and would take the drug as a stimulant before playing tennis. Allegedly, he named the substance Ritalin after his wife's nickname Rita. In 1957, Ciba Pharmaceutical Company began marketing Ritalin to treat chronic fatigue, depression, psychosis associated with depression, narcolepsy, and to offset the sedating effects of other medications. It was also used into the 1960s as an attempt to counteract the symptoms of barbiturate overdose. For a short time, methylphenidate was sold in combination with other substances as lifestyle products, particularly in a tonic of hormones and vitamins marketed as Ritonic in 1960, intended to improve general mood and maintain vitality. Research on the therapeutic value of Ritalin began in the 1950s, and by the 1960s, interest focused on the treatment of hyperkinetic syndrome, or hyperactivity, which would eventually be called Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, or ADHD. In the United States, the use of Ritalin and other stimulants to treat ADHD steadily increased in the 1970s and early 80s, but between 1991 and 1999, Ritalin sales in the United States skyrocketed 500%. In the 1990s, the U.S. accounted for 90% of global use of stimulants, such as methylphenidate and dextroamphetamine. By the early 2000s, this had fallen to 80%, primarily due to increased usage in other countries. In 2003, doctors in the UK were prescribing about a tenth of the amount per capita as that prescribed in the US, while France and Italy accounted for approximately one-twentieth of US consumption. 
According to a 2015 report by the International Narcotics Control Board, the United States continues to account for more than 80% of global, of global consumption of methylphenidate. Beginning in the 1980s, a series of lawsuits were filed based on the perceived harmful side effects of Ritalin. In the late 1990s, with a significant increase in prescription of Ritalin, a minor but vocal group of critics began raising the alarm that a crisis was on hand. A series of five federal lawsuits filed in five separate U.S. states in 2000, known as the Ritalin class action lawsuits, alleged that the manufacturers of Ritalin and the American Psychiatric Association had conspired to invent and promote the disorder ADHD in order to create a highly profitable market for the drug. By the end of 2002, just two years later, all five lawsuits were dismissed as frivolous or otherwise withdrawn. According to an article by the Los Angeles Times, the uproar over Ritalin was triggered almost single-handedly by the Scientology movement. The Citizens Commission on Human Rights, an anti-psychiatry group formed by Scientologists in 1969, were behind a major campaign against Ritalin in the 1980s and lobbied Congress for an investigation into Ritalin. Scientology publications themselves admitted that the real target of the campaign was, quote, the psychiatric profession itself. Indeed, controversy surrounding the use and overprescription of Ritalin is intimately tied to the perceived overdiagnosis of ADHD or even the validity of ADHD as a mental disorder. For example, the British Psychological Society wrote in a 1997 report that physicians and psychiatrists should not follow the American example of applying medical labels to such a wide variety of attention-related disorders. Quote, the idea that children who don't attend or who don't sit still in school have a mental disorder is not entertained by most British clinicians, end quote. Compounding the skepticism is the fact that the pathophysiology of ADHD is unclear, and there are a number of competing theories as to its origin. Frequently observed differences in the brain between ADHD and non-ADHD patients have been discovered from various types of neuroimaging, but it's uncertain if or how these differences give rise to the symptoms of ADHD. Although ADHD is said to be highly heritable, and twin studies suggest genetics are a factor in about 75% of ADHD cases, it has also been argued that ADHD is a hetero heterogeneous disorder caused by a complex interaction of genetic and environmental factors, and thus cannot be modeled accurately using the single gene theory. Authors of a review of ADHD etiology in 2004 noted, although several genome-wide searches have identified chromosomal regions that are predicted to contain genes that contribute to ADHD susceptibility, to date, no single gene with a major contribution to ADHD has been identified. Regardless, it has been argued that even if ADHD is a social construct, this doesn't mean it's not also a valid concern. For example, obesity is often the result of various environmental factors in addition to a genetic predisposition, yet it still has demonstrable adverse health effects associated with it. It's also been argued that overdiagnosis occurs most frequently in higher-income communities, whereas underdiagnosis occurs more frequently in underprivileged and minority communities, due to a lack of resources and lack of financial access. Those without health insurance are, to, are statistically less likely to be diagnosed with ADHD. Overdiagnosis is also far more likely in young male patients, whereas female patients are far more likely to be underdiagnosed. The ratio for male to female patients is 4 to 1, with 92% of girls receiving a primarily inattentive subtype diagnosis rather than hyperactive. 
This difference in gender can be explained for the most part by the different ways boys and girls express symptoms of this particular disorder. Typically, girls with ADHD exhibit less disruptive behaviors and more internalizing behaviors. Girls tend to show fewer behavioral problems, less aggressive behaviors, less impulsivity, and less, less hyperactivity than the boys diagnosed with ADHD. These patterns of behavior are less likely to disrupt the classroom or home setting, therefore allowing parents and teachers to easily overlook or neglect the presence of a potential problem. This leaves many women and girls with ADHD neglected. Studies have shown that girls with ADHD, especially those with signs of impulsivity, were three to four times more likely to attempt suicide when compared with female controls. Additionally, these girls were two to three times more likely to engage in self-harming behaviors. Currently, ADHD management recommendations vary by country and usually involve some combination of counseling, lifestyle changes, and medication. The British guideline only recommends medications as a first-line treatment in children who have severe symptoms, and otherwise recommends medication only for those who either refuse or fail to improve with counseling. Canadian and American guidelines recommend that medications and behavioral therapy be used together as a first-line therapy, except in preschool-aged children. In the end, mountains of clinical research have established the safety and effectiveness of long-term stimulant use in the treatment of ADHD. Indeed, magnetic resonance imaging studies, or MRIs, suggest that long-term treatment with amphetamine or methylphenidate actually decreases physical abnormalities in brain structure and function. So that's all for this week's segment of Drug of the Month. Next week, Sam will be back with current news, trends, and events surrounding Ritalin. time for a roundtable discussion where we bring together some of the brightest minds in drug policy reform to talk about the biggest issues facing us today. For today's episode, it's a special one. We're going to be speaking with Michaela Helwick, the founder of a new harm reduction nonprofit called Drug Story. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks so much for having me on. And so before we get started, as, as a little bit of a disclosure, both myself and Rochelle are actually two of the five members of Drug Stories Board of Directors. So we are helping out with this project, but in much of a less direct role than Michaela, who is the executive director and is actually running the show. So she obviously knows way more about the vision and the day-to-day -day than we do. So we're going to be uh, talking a bit about this project and telling our listeners what it's all about. Um, so before getting into where things currently stand, um, to start things off, could you tell us what you aim for Drug Story to eventually become? Like, what's the what's the vision for it? What is what's it going to look like when it's fully up up and running? So Drug Story is going to be a web application. Uh, it's going to be an interactive database of drug experiences designed to promote the health and safety of all mind-altering drug consumers. So the site is for anyone who consumes a drug that alters the mind, legal or otherwise, alcohol, caffeine, prescription painkillers, all illegal drugs. Um, we're, we're basically just uh, copying all of the mind-altering drugs from Arrowwood's library um, and, and allowing people to, to tell their stories about each of those drugs. So when you come to the site, you'll fill out a really quick survey that catalogs the experience with information about you, about the drug, the setting, how you'd rate the experience uh, on a scale of 1 to 10, did you overdose, uh, questions that other drug users might find helpful. And then you'll be able to tell a short story about what happened. The long-term vision 
version is to have a customizable graphics engine to look at the numbers that we've collected. So you'll be able to telegraph what data interests you and it'll plot that information on a chart or a graph and, and show you uh, trends over time, uh, common trends in certain demographics. and anything really. Um, and the reason that we're, we're doing that is part of a philosophy of mine that information should be accessible to people. I'm not interested in selling the anonymous data uh, people are providing to us just so that a third party can decide how that information gets used or interpreted. Um, I want people to be able to see for themselves with no frills or biases uh, what's happening among drug users in a, in a quantitative sense. And so you mentioned the popular website, Arrowid, uh, which a lot of our listeners are probably familiar with. And the data collection side of your project is actually kind of reminiscent of the Global Drug Survey, which we've discussed on our show before. How is Drug Story different from either of those websites? And how can that data be used um, in different ways? So first of all, Arrowhead is amazing, and and we fully support their work, and we we absolutely encourage people to use uh, to use their site as well. Um, we want to create something that can be used alongside Arrowhead. Um, the stories that they collect are sometimes on the more extreme end of things, and they're sort of hard to search through. The the research end of the, their their drug library is is very comprehensive. It's not there's nothing like it out there uh, in the whole world. Um, but we're we're trying to sort of fill a a gap in their in their like storytelling um, mechanism there. And so they they collected over a hundred thousand stories in a ten year period and only published a quarter of them. And not everybody is a great storyteller or a fantastic writer. But we're trying to remove that obstacle from from you know their their selection process and mm -hmm. make something that anybody can submit to so if you you know maybe maybe it's hard for you to remember all of the details about your story but you can t still fill out some of the survey and um and tell and tell a little bit of a of a story with it so that's that's sort of where we're at with um with Arrowhead and so it, it does present a less curated, more raw version of these drug experiences than what you would normally see on Arrowhead. And it sounds like it's going to be a lot more user-friendly as far as um, people coming to the website to find other people's experiences. Right. So when the, the purpose of the survey is to file everything. So you'll be able to search through the stories by keyword located in the actual story, or you can search through it based on the data that you provided in this, that other people have provided in the survey. So, you know, if you only wanted to read about uh, experiences, like mostly positive experiences involving psychedelic mushrooms and the consumer being female, then you could narrow it down to something that's specific or even oh, more cool. specific if you wanted to. Um, but to yeah, answer your awesome. to answer your mm -hmm. point about the global drug survey, they're they're also pioneers, and we we really respect their work too. But the survey can take at least thirty minutes to complete, and many drug users aren't keeping track of all of the drugs that they do in a single year, uh, especially people who consume drugs regularly. Mm -hmm. So there, it sort of limits the. It sort of limits the ability of the the person taking the survey to answer all of those questions very precisely. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, how many times did I do this last year? I, you know, so there's a lot of rough guessing involved. So you're talking about the global the global drug survey, not uh, not drug stories survey. 
Um, so the Global Drug Survey is administered only once a year. So that means users would have to remember all of their experiences from the past year as opposed to Drug Stories model, which is like an ongoing kind of real-time data collection. The Global Drug Survey I think of as being the end point and Arrowhead I think of as being the very beginning and I'd like Drug Story to be somewhere in the middle of those. And if a person is interested in trying a new drug or learning about a drug that they're already using, then it'd be great if they could go to Arrowhead and learn as much as they could about that drug and then provide stories to Drug Story and then use the information that they have provided to Drug Story throughout the year to aid in their completion of the global drug survey. Oh, wow. I love how all of these dots are connected together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it would be a really cool thing to be able to be filling this out throughout the year and then go to fill out the global drug survey and be like, oh, I'm not sure how much caffeine I consumed, how much marijuana or whatever other drug that I consumed over the past year. Let me kind of go back to what I put into drug story and might be able to um, remember a lot better that way. And, and so, and I do really like the, uh, it just being such a, a much more frequent thing because then that helps so much in terms of keeping people mindful about their own drug consumption too. Just kind of, I know that there's obviously a, a lot of differences between this and say an app like MyFitnessPal in which you're, you're tracking all of your food intake. Um, but it is somewhat similar in the sense that it's like, oh, it's great to get into a habit of, hey, every time that I, I take a drug, I'll, I'll just put a quick thing on drug story um, and then I'll be able to be a lot more mindful about my drug intake in the same way that logging all of your food just kind of makes you um, much more mindful of how you're eating, even if you're not trying to change anything. And um, so with all of this data, though, I mean, I know it's a concern that gets brought up a lot um, of just data security. Um, so a lot of people, uh, unlike putting a, a bunch of, uh, of your food intake into something on the internet, um, depending on what drugs you're taking, you might be admitting to having done an illegal activity, um, like possessing an illegal drug. Um, and so how, how are you going to be dealing with, with users' private data and making sure that it actually stays anonymous and secure? It's, there really is the one of the most common questions that we get, and it's, it is our number one concern. I mean, the, the drug war is it's still waging on, and, uh, and unfortunately, people are still considered criminals in most places for using uh, most illegal drugs. So we will never collect or store IP addresses, and account creation will be totally optional. Um, users who opt into creating an account won't necessarily have to provide an email address to connect that account anyway. I think Reddit does that as well. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I was about to say that. Uh, the account holders will have uh, a few additional permissions, for instance. Uh, they'll be able to send private messages to other account holders, and they'll be able to interact with people's stories by giving an upvote or, um, or notifying the moderators that the, uh, that the post is violating some rule. Um, of, the, of the site, mm -hmm. and so it, it allows you to be sort of a uh, sort of a site ranger and and look out for mm -hmm. the the sanctity of the site. But the we're gonna have a, a totally comprehensive like legal FAQ page up. I'm not the tech person, so I can't answer all of the really nitty gritty uh, cybersecurity questions. But that is absolutely mm -hmm. our number one concern. And just 
just to take a step back before we delve further into the details um, of the website and how this project is going so far, um, I'd love to know, and you, you kind of alluded to this and we talked about how there definitely is um, a missing piece in what's available out there right now, but what inspired you to create this project? So uh, you and Sam were both there, and we were <laughs> Tell driving... us the story of where, what we were doing at the time. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a silly story. Well, we were all driving to this uh, this show in Virginia, this this two-day show. We were all very excited, and one of the, the passengers was a, a friend of ours from, from out of town, and she wanted to know whether a drug she was interested in trying would interact with an antidepressant that she was currently taking, and... That information is is certainly out there. Um, it's not the easiest to find, but we told her, you know, go to Arrowwood, read about what what's going on, um, you know, with people uh, in that situation on Arrowwood, and uh, and she tried to pull it up on her phone, and and Arrowwood isn't particularly mobile friendly, so it's sort of hard. You have to keep zooming mm -hmm. in and zooming out and stuff like that. And she started reading these stories, uh, sort of tangentially to the story that she was. Uh, the information that she was looking for and she, she's talking about how extreme all of these stories were and and how you know it just seemed absurd that someone would do uh do that many drugs at once and i was like yeah we need an arrowhead for regular people stories and mm -hmm. and that that idea was just sort of like came to me in passing um i didn't really do anything about it um but i I sort of ruminated on it for a little bit, and on uh, January 1st of this year, I purchased uh, a domain name, uh, drugstory.me. I mean, that, that story does really highlight, um, you know, another sad facet of the drug war that we're currently experiencing, which is that the reality of people doing drugs and wanting to do so safely in conjunction with prescription medicine that they're taking you know normally when you're prescribed pharmaceuticals your doctor will be able to tell you like what other medications are you on um, and make sure that there aren't any negative reactions between the two but if when, when you're talking about illicit recreational drugs mixed with prescription drugs there just isn't that information for people to be ensuring that they're doing it safely right and some of those combinations are fatal and and that mm -hmm. information just might not be readily available for those people yeah, and I think it is also important to note, too, of just how our current legal system, too, emphasizes or like really only allows those more extreme voices to, to come out and that people who are, say, a casual drug user or user of illegal drugs um, and never have anything terrible happen to them, those stories don't really get told because those people are trying to be responsible and not get caught. But then the only voices that really come out is, say, when there's a disaster and you hear like an incredibly sad story about, say, an overdose or, or an incredibly bad trip, some sort of really negative experience. And then you also get the people on the other end who are the ones who are, you know, so passionate about drugs that they'll... They're willing to kind of stick their necks out and become an evangelist. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, a lot of the times those... Uh, folks end up stretching facts or making drugs out to be a, a complete panacea. And it turns off a lot of people who are just a little bit more skeptical or, or on the fence or haven't tried those drugs. So it is really nice to be able to to figure out a way so that those everyday normal stories get told rather than just pushing it to the extremes. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and we want to know what the regular experiences are and the the unusual outliers and the more extreme experiences. It's mm-hmm. it's hard to get a really clear picture of what's going on unless you're truly accepting all of the stories that people submit. Mm-hmm. And so that is really, I mean, I love talking about the big vision for this and where it's going to be going because obviously being a part of the project, I am incredibly excited about it and think it has so much potential. Um, but I do also want to talk about uh, what's actually going on with it right now. Um, so it is just launching. Um, and as the first step, we're currently in the middle of a kickoff fundraiser. Um, so to start off, just how, how is that going? What's the latest? I have been so overwhelmed by how much people are are, are loving the project and, and supporting it. In We launched last Wednesday, and in two days we raised a third of our goal. And as of uh, a week ago, or in one week, so you know, this past Wednesday, uh, we mm-hmm. raised more than half of our goal. And we have... Uh, more than 58 supporters. It's our, our Facebook posts have been reaching tens of thousands of people all over the world, um, largely thanks to SSDP and, uh, and the, the amazing coordination that we've had with promoting on social media. Uh, it's, it's really, really been fantastic. I'm very excited. Yeah, it was really exciting to see how much support there's already been. I mean, I'm looking at it right now. Uh, we're recording this uh, on Friday, September 16th, and it's currently at yeah, $2,828, uh, which is over half of the goal. So it's really exciting to see so much support, and, and I think we'll definitely be able to make it. Um, this is on the website, uh, youcaring.com, and we'll, of course, be sure to put a link to uh, Drug Story's actual page there on our website um, and in the show notes. Um, but so this is somewhat similar to Kickstarter, um, but is it different in that? Is there is there a set end date for when this um, is wrapping up um, that you have to, to raise the money by? Or is this an ongoing thing till we hit the goal, just so our users know how, how quick they have to donate? We are wrapping up on the last Friday of this month. Okay, awesome. So if you're listening and want to donate to Drug Story, be sure to head to that link uh, right now as you're listening so you can you can check it out. We should also mention that um, because Students for Sensible Drug Policy is our fiscal sponsors, um, any donations to this project are tax deductible, even though we don't have our own uh, nonprofit status yet. So if that's something you're concerned about or that incentivizes you... Um, you can deduct this donation. And so as far as talking about the rest of the of the project, too, I mean, this fundraiser is what's going on right now, but there has been a lot of work uh, before this, and of course there's going to be a lot, a lot of work afterwards. But what's kind of the rough plan for the project? Like, how, since that inception of the idea, what have you done so far? And, and I'm sure many of our listeners being a lot of SSDPers are just really curious to hear about how an SSDPer starts a nonprofit of their own. Oh wow, it's it's been so much work, uh, but it hasn't mm-hmm. felt like it hasn't been unpleasant. <laughs> I <laughs> I've loved every minute of it. I I have another job, so it's something that I have had to do on the side. Um, like I said, I I purchased the URL on January first of this year, and we launched the fundraiser eight months later. So in between there. I was reading about tax law and assembling a board of directors. <laughs> I and... do not envy you. <laughs> it, it, it's a lot of paperwork. Um, be prepared. You know, if you're interested in forming your own nonprofit, there is a lot of paperwork involved. Um, mm-hmm. But we formed a really fantastic team of people, um, people who are largely affiliated with SSDP, but um, it, everybody uh, is, is affiliated with drug policy reform in some way. And, the 
fundraiser launch is intended to build the first incarnations, you know, the first beta. And after, after we have a, it's probably going to take about six months, um, just at a, at a rough, rough guess, you know, things always take a little bit longer than you expect them to, but I think, I think six months Mm -hmm. is a reasonable guess. And after we have a beta running, it's going to be real basic, no frills. Um, the graphics engine won't be there. It'll just be, uh, you will be able to tell your story and then search through other people's stories. So that will, once we have that up and running and we get enough people to test it and give us feedback, then we can start working on the graphics engine, which I don't know how long that'll take. It sounds very complicated, but uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the web developers that uh, are working on the project are very, very smart and capable, and I trust their ability to do it. Do we have do we have an estimate for so- how many users we would need to sign up in order for the data to start being useful? Um, That's a really interesting question. I think... So Drew Stromberg is the lead developer on this project. He is a former SSDP employee and built the chapter activity tracker, which is also an interactive database. So he's got some experience in this area. I don't remember the number that he gave me exactly, but I think in order for it to start, uh, in order for us to, to consider the the project a success, we'd want like, you know, three or 4,000 stories, um, uh-huh. or, or no, for, first to consider the beta a success is to just get a couple of thousand stories in. Yeah, well, hopefully that won't be too hard to get to considering um, how far our fundraiser has reached already, um, you know, and assuming there was a lot of people who would uh, use the web app who may not be in a financial situation to support it necessarily right now. Exactly. Yeah, using the website will be free, so that totally removes an obstacle. Awesome. So, so we know we know how many people we need to be using the website. We are all super excited uh, to see that beta version launched and uh, help you get started um, with the data collection. How how do we envision using that data once it's um, been collected? And what is what is our goals? What are our goals uh, towards improving drug policy with through Drug Story? So the on the story end of it the information that people provide for each other just through storytelling, I think that has the potential to help people on an individual level. And then the data itself, I think, has a a more large-scale implication. So once we have the data and we can play with it, and and, and really anybody will be able to do that, then we we have the potential to inform policy. You know, if there's one, uh, or, you know, maybe not policy directly, but maybe there's, uh, you know, direct service kind of actions that could be taken uh, based on the information that we have. Maybe there's one demographic of people who all of a sudden is experiencing a, a really sharp, you know, there's a sharp outlier going on. You know, maybe there's a lot of overdoses among among one demographic, or maybe there's, there's one... Uh, one drug that seems to be uh, seems to be vulnerable to tamp- tampering with way more often. Um, just or it'd be interesting to see like geographical trends too, uh, since you know sometimes certain drugs or certain uh, varieties of drugs take hold in different regions of the country or even the world before they reach other places. So it'd be kind of interesting to track those kinds of trends too. So that's a, that's a really great. Um, a great thing to be looking at, but we have to figure out how to do, how to do that in a secure way because our mm-hmm. 
part of our privacy settings in the very beginning is uh, mm-hmm. going to be not collecting. Uh, you know, we're not going to ask your zip code. We're not going to ask your city. Um, okay. We might we, we might ask state um, just because that might be helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, state right. and country definitely, but getting into this specific location would be so, so helpful if we could, if we could find a way to do it really securely. And if, you know, maybe if the beginning uh, stages, the beta goes really well, then we might be able to attract a really, um, a really skilled secure security expert. I mean, another use that we kind of talked about um, as an aside, that may not be the main purpose for drug story is how, Um, stories of recovery often help other people who are struggling with um, substance use disorder. So even if you're someone who has used drugs in the past and you may have developed a problematic relationship with it, sharing those kinds of stories um, of how you were able to overcome your addiction or disorder may be helpful to other users who are trying to get off drugs as well. Exactly. I really look forward to that possibility too. There's there's so much potential for people to connect with each other, especially through, um, so account, like I said, account holders can send private messages to each other. So if, Mm -hmm. if you, you know, if you're working towards recovery and you read somebody else's success story, then you can, you can connect with them through a private message and, and gain support that way. I think there's been, because of the drug war, there's been so much isolation of, these different pockets of drug using populations all throughout the country. And Mm -hmm. with the internet, we've been able to connect with each other and share this information that the government has decided we don't deserve to have. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's allowing us to, to help each other survive and thrive. And, and, you know, maybe that means getting sober. Maybe that means um, finding a, you know, a medicine that works for you. Maybe mm-hmm. it means figuring out how to experiment with psychedelics for religious purposes. Yeah, I really love this, like, um, non-judgmental, supportive community building aspect to the website as well, um, which we've seen to a limited, a, a more limited extent in, like, certain subreddits. Um, but I love giving people a place to come and be able to find that community if they don't have it in their in their offline life (laughs) Mm -hmm. it'll have some similarities to forums in that respect but it's definitely going to function more as an application um so that it's it's much more um it's much more geared towards like user experience all right so i am so excited to be part of this project and just to see it grow and actually become functional and all of the people start using this because i think this is going to be a tremendously useful both project for people to be able to talk to each other and also collecting all of that data for even people who are users or non-users of the site. Um, and so unfortunately we are up on our time now, uh, but we always wrap up our discussions with a call to action since educating people is a lot of fun and important, but it's not very useful if you're not then using it to improve your community and make a positive change. So if you could have all of our listeners do something right now, what would you ask them to do? I would ask your listeners to check out our Facebook page, Facebook dot com slash drugstory.me and check out our fundraising page on youcaring.com slash drugstory and make a donation today. 
All right. And of course, we'll have links to both of those places up on our website, thisweekindrugs.org, for you guys to check out. So once again, this has been Michaela Helwig, founder and executive director of the new project Drug Story. Thank you so much for joining us today, Michaela. Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks for listening to episode 62 of This Week in Drugs, hosted by Sam Chasey and myself, Rochelle Young. Our producer is Tyler Williams, and Sarah Merrigan is our engagement director. We'd also like to thank Michaela Helwick once again for joining us for our roundtable discussion. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for the show, please send us a message on Facebook or Twitter, or email us at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com. You can also check out our website, thisweekindrugs.org, for more information about the show, including links to our guests, news stories, and events. If you're listening to this podcast on iTunes and like what you hear, please give us a rating and write a quick review. It helps us get to the top of the charts so other people can find us and start listening and learning too. Finally, This Week in Drugs is an all-volunteer project. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to support our work, please check out our Patreon page, which is linked to on our website. This allows you to commit a small monthly donation to help defray the cost of our web hosting fees. So that's all for episode 62 of This Week in Drugs. We hope you enjoyed the show and we'll see you again next week. Our outro song this week is Rattlesnake by Colin Quest.